0: should always be somebody in your life that you can turn to no matter what. Someone that will be there to lend an ear, to give you guidance or show support. And sometimes it's doing a favor, either you for them or them for you. In a lot of families, when someone needs a babysitter, especially for an overnight stay, they feel most comfortable looking towards their family. And in many cases, it's the family of a sibling this is someone that you should be able to trust no matter what and i'm sure that's what victoria Harmon was thinking when she dropped her son luke hill off at her sister amanda sewell's home amanda along with her husband kevin sewell had promised to watch three-year-old luke hill for the evening so that amanda and her fiance nick could go out for the evening they probably had absolutely no qualms about dropping the young boy off at his aunt and uncle's. It would be an overnight stay, and it would give two young cousins a chance to play with each other and develop that bond that many cousins share, as Amanda and Luke also had a little boy. But what happened that night and parts of the next day was nothing short of horrific, to the point that I had to stop reading at times. And even questioned about whether or not I could really describe everything that was happening to a three year old. While reading some of the injuries, it did bring to mind a case I did earlier with Justin Corbett being an airman at Dover Air Force Base who was accused of abuse and the murder of Evan Dudley. I'll leave a link to that episode, actually, two episodes in the description of the podcast. Um, I actually did a collaboration with um, Brad from Killin Hidden, Missing podcast. And he actually was an attorney who worked on military bases at points in um, his career. So he really was able to lend a lot um, to understand why things are done a certain way. But what it also shows is there's no shortage Of these stories, where children are entrusted to someone that a mother knows, feels that they can trust, and ultimately that child pays the price of adults' violent actions. That should serve as the content warning for today's episode. And today's episode will be about the death of Luke Hill. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding roads that lead around the Delmarva Peninsula. And in today's case, we'll be going across state lines from Maryland into Virginia. If you've previously listened to the podcast, you may have noticed that I started a little bit differently. And what I'm just trying to see you know, how it works with the flow of an episode is to give a little more information at the beginning about what I'll be talking about um, before, you know, I kind of get into the podcast in general, and then go back into the individual story. So if you're not familiar with Delmarva, we're a region on the east coast of the United States in the mid-Atlantic region. We encompass all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the northeast of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. While in some stories I've gone back further, say into the 1800s, this episode will be pretty recent comparatively, having occurred in May of 2015 with the incidents happening specifically um, on May 2nd and May 3rd. And just a couple things that I want to go over before we get into the episode is first, At the same time when this was going on, Kevin Sewell was a young man living in Pocomoke City, Maryland, um, 27 years old, at least at the time of one newspaper article in September of 2016. Well, in 2015, the police chief of Pocomoke City's name was Kelvin Sewell, with um, an L in the first name. And what I found is, as there was some controversy happening with the police chief at the time as well, some articles have some typos. I've seen the police chief, Calvin Soul, his name spelled with at the, without the L or with the L actually near the front of the name, K-L-E-V-I-N, though that I think was really just a typo altogether. While most articles do spell his name correctly, there are some that refer to the police chief, but they're spelled as Kevin, not Calvin. So that's just something to keep an eye out if you do go and google a name or the incident and you you know have some pieces of information that seem to be talking about two different things. One may be about the police chief. Also, as with many victims of crimes, there's not as much known Usually, about them. We learn more about the killer or the attacker, depending on what the actual crime was. Um, We find out more about the criminal themselves, not the actual victim. And especially when the victim is three years old, you're really at a time where they're coming into their own, um, developing their own personality, and really, to me, at the funnest time of their lives. I now have two teenagers, and, you know, I. I look back at when they were this age, you know, three years old approximately, and just how sometimes when they saw something new, the joy that they had, you know, just those little things. And I miss that. So to imagine anyone being able to do some of the things that I'm going to discuss today is just unimaginable. And now the fact that it did involve family members just makes it so much harder to comprehend Yet, statistically, with any crime, it's usually perpetrated by somebody that the victim knows. And this was a pretty close um, relationship, being aunt, uncle, nephew, and how it must have affected the whole family. You know, kind of pitting the two sisters against each other to, on the one hand, say Luke's grandmother, mourning the loss of your grandchild, but then knowing that your other child was somehow involved. So we'll get into the details of that, but then also at what the long-term impact that this particular case had and the duty of anybody in a situation to help prevent a crime or help bring a crime to someone's attention. What is that duty? And is there ever a time when that duty is waived? This case helped bring at least the Maryland statutes in line with technology as it's just getting more advanced quicker and quicker so that a lot of times legislation needs to keep up. And we'll see how that impacted this case and then how this case has impacted clarification of those statutes going forward. If you do like the content, please share, like, subscribe, um, rate, just depending on whatever the podcast platform that you engage with um, how they actually track your engagement, different ones, you know you can follow or leave comments, some you can't, but that helps build the, um, the listeners in the podcast as well. All of the sources that I used for today's story will be linked in the description of the episode. And while a lot of the information came primarily from some of the documents filed with a second, appellate court's decision. I did also get more um, feedback and information about the case as the stories were coming out in the newspapers as well. But to get the specifics about the injuries, I did use case summaries and appellate decisions from the second appellate court to get those specific details about the injuries. So with that being said, let's get into the very sad and tragic case of Luke Hill. Victoria Harmon and her fiancé, Nick Miller, had spent an evening together alone, probably assured that little Luke was being well taken care of by Victoria's sister, Amanda. Nick and Victoria lived in Keller, Virginia, which is in Accomack County on the eastern shore of Delmarva. Now, just with my familiarity of the general region, they may have had to travel a little bit to get to either a club or a sit-down restaurant, um, just depending on exactly where they were in Virginia. But it would have made sense for the Sewells to keep Luke overnight. I know that when I go to certain areas of Accomac, it's usually for me to relax. But on the reverse side of that is... You know, if you want to go to a restaurant or, like I said, other type of settings, you may have to travel a little bit. As even though I live in a town that is much bigger, I sometimes have to travel for certain things. And to find out a little bit about color itself, well, in 1980, the town boasted a population of 236 and in 1990, it was staying pretty steady at 235. There was a large dip in the 2000 census, with there only being 173 people, down by 26 plus percent. There was a very small or very little ground recovered in 2010 with 178 people. In 2019, the population was 169, which means it would have dropped down by about 5% then. That means the town itself was pretty small. Amanda and Kevin lived in Pocomoke, Maryland, and you may see it listed as Pocomoke City. I usually just say Pocomoke. People say it's the friendliest town on the shore, but on May 2nd of 2015, Victoria Harmon never knew that her son was not going to get a friendly welcome by his uncle. Pocomoke has just about 4,300 residents So not a huge town, but definitely bigger than Keller. The drop-off to the Sewell's house happened at around 3 p.m. And as family members do, the sisters spent a moment or two catching up, but then Victoria and Nick went out for their evening alone. For the next couple of hours, Kevin Sewell played with his son and nephew until approximately 5. They had what I consider to be one of my favorite dinners, which is breakfast for dinner, enjoying eggs and sausage. Amanda did give her nephew a bath that evening, and she did testify that at the time she gave him that bath, she had made an observation that she had never seen him with bruises like that before. She said that he had a lot of bruises over his body, including you know in areas of his face, his neck, and even including two black eyes. Well, it didn't say two, but it used the words plural eyes, so It sounds like it was obvious on both eyes that there had been an injury, which, at least at that point, Amanda did not say that she questioned, at least at that particular point in time. He was seemingly feeling well and able to play, so she didn't really question anything, just kind of commented to herself that she noticed the bruises. That is, if her testimony is actually accurate, the next morning, Amanda did have to leave for her work at a restaurant. She had to leave at around 6.45 a.m., and so she got up early, and Kevin would be the children's caretaker throughout the rest of the day. This should not have been an issue, of course, as Kevin should have had his own experience and experiences watching his own son while his wife was at work, and now he was watching his son play with his cousin. So really, it shouldn't have been too much for Kevin to be able to handle. However, things start to take a turn very quickly once the couple start texting back and forth to each other throughout the day while Amanda is at work. Now, I've tried to record this part four or five times because I want to make sure that the details that are important are seen, but also or heard, I should say but also not to be redundant in saying the time of each text message. So what I'm going to do is instead of giving like each time stamp, as there are a number of short ones, I will summarize the ones that are close together. So like Kevin has four text messages at one point in less than a minute. I'll just kind of read them all together, but only mention if there's a big gap between the text messages. Beginning at 9.07, Amanda texts Kevin and asks if everything's okay. Kevin says, yeah, boo, he doesn't listen worth SH, but we're fine. I think Tori told me he breaks out from grass. I wonder if that's why his neck and chest are broke out. Amanda replies, his ear is bruised. Kevin says, yeah, it sure is. Maybe him and their son's name is redacted we're rough housing. Amanda says, he's very skittish. Kevin, yeah, he is, I've noticed. though? And then six minutes later, he threw up on our sheets. Kevin then says their daughter's name was sleeping and Luke started screaming. So Kevin says he made him lay down and continues, then he threw up on our bed. Amanda, nice, strip the bed and put what you can in the washer, please. Kevin agrees, and then at 10.12, Amanda asks how Kevin is doing. He says, good boo-boo, Amanda, you going with me to take him home? And there's a delay in response by about 50 minutes, or actually more than an hour. So Amanda sends a couple of question marks, and then Kevin says at 11.44, I thought you were taking him tomorrow, and then at 12.05, what time are you getting off? Amanda replies, today, which looks like it's about when she's taking him home. And then also replies, 1.30, as far as when she's getting off. Kevin says, okay, that's fine, because he's acting like an effing a-hole, so he's calling a three-year-old that. He ignores you like he's, word redacted here, it's not redacted on the forms, but I'm not going to say it. He's thrown up twice, and all he does is whine. This is the last time. The other thing I've been entertained by is him running around saying, kind of redacted for content. He starts clapping and looking for high fives. Amanda, WTF, you going to do the yard while I'm gone? And after a delay, Amanda sends another question. Kevin, I don't know, maybe. This has been a day from hell. He's finally asleep in our room. Please get me a bottle. This has been a day from hell. Please. Amanda at 131 says, okay, but then follows up by saying she'll be off around two then. Kevin says, okay, then at 218, is it too late for you to get me a shot too? If so, it's fine. I can run out. I'll give you the money. I'm sorry. Then Amanda says, I'll give you the money. I'm still at work. Kevin says, okay, I have money. And this ends their first kind of um, set of texts, I guess you would say. These all happen before Amanda got off work. So this was between when she left and when she got off work. The last text from that time period was at 219, and though it's not stated what time she got home, it would have had to have been sometime after that point, presumably. When she got to the house, um, the plan was that Amanda would drive Luke back to Victoria's house. And so once she did get home from work, she says that she saw Luke was laying down on the bed and covered up with a blanket. She went into her room, which is where he was. She felt, and it seemed like he was just asleep to her, But she was able to change his clothes without waking him up. Then by 3.16, she was on the road again, as that's when we see she starts to text Kevin again, where actually he initiates the first text. And I have to question exactly how long there was between when she left And when he first texted her, I just have questions later on that. I don't know. To me, they just make me really wonder what a motivation was here. But at 316, Kevin says, hey, I love you. Be careful. Don't tell him I bit him on that or bit him back. LOL. Blame. And Kevin says to blame their son. I didn't even bite him hard, but apparently he bruises easy. Amanda replies, I told her he had bruises, so I'll just say they were already there. I love you too. Kevin says, I'm glad we have a day off together. Well, he bit the SH out of me. How else will we learn not to bite? Amanda says, right, and then follows it up by saying, I only get on you because I know you can do better. Kevin says, I'd be more concerned about all the bruises. Once she does get to her sister's home... Um, Victoria comes out of the house and goes to the car to see her little boy. He was sitting in the back of Amanda's car and was on a booster in a booster seat. However, when Victoria went to get him out, he did not respond. I cannot imagine what must have been going through her mind. Now, it was very obvious at that point that something was very wrong with Luke. They did find that he had a large knot on his head. So it was obvious he had experienced some type of head injury. Now, this was along with the bite that Kevin was talking about. And even though Luke was still breathing, it was described as sounding like a rattle. So when I when I read that, just automatically the sound of kind of the congestion or the phlegm when you have a respiratory infection, that's what came to mind. But it probably even sounded sounded thicker. Victoria's fiancé, Nick, got to the car and got Luke out. Um, Victoria hastily called emergency services, and after Nick had been able to pull him out and put him on the ground, he ran over to a neighbor's house who he knew was an EMT to try to get that neighbor to lend assistance, and he was just getting home um, from what I read in newspaper articles. Luke was transported to a local hospital, but they could see that he he really needed more help than they could provide. He was flown to King's Daughter's Hospital in Norfolk and taken to surgery. However, after Victoria dropped Luke off to her sister's house, she didn't know at that time that she'd never hear her little boy's voice again. He didn't wake up after surgery, and he died on May 5th. Given the extent of the injuries and the time frame that the Sewells had custody of Luke, police decided to arrest Kevin Sewell. He faced four charges, which included first-degree murder, second-degree murder, first-degree child abuse, and neglect of a minor. Amanda herself was not out of the woods either. She was facing charges of neglect of a minor, And also, first-degree child abuse resulting in death, but that charge really wasn't able to stick to what they could prove, as well as there was some, I guess you would say, exchanges going on that we'll talk about a little bit more going forward. The injuries that I'm about to go over that led to the decision to charge murder and child abuse were provided from a Dr. Suzanne Starling, who did work at Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters, and she specializes in the child abuse recognition. So she was working at the hospital at the time of I'm sorry of Luke's admission. She was the um, medical director of the child abuse program there. So she had access to his records and the injuries that he received, as well as another doctor who was quoted through some newspaper articles, and that was Dr. Wendy Gunther. To say that Luke was covered in bruises was not hyperbole or an exaggeration. It sounded like almost from head to toe that the little boy had bruises. So here are some of the things that I'm going to list. It doesn't cover everything as it was estimated that he had somewhere between 40 and 50 injuries. Some of the bruises could have even been overlapping. However, it wasn't really clear as to whether or not the bruises were in different stages of healing or if they all looked like they had been received at the same time. As I, To me, at least, that's very important, but I wasn't able to find anything like that in the appellate document that I had. But These are some of his injuries. There was a large bruise on his abdomen. There were bruises on both hips, legs, arms, and under both armpits. Now, most of this information right here is going to be about the left side of his body and his face right now. There was a bruise that began on his forehead that led into the hairline. So visibly, you could only see part of the bruise, but it actually extended under the hair where you couldn't see it. There was a cut underneath of his left eye, bruising on the front left cheek, bruising around the jawbone, and within the ear itself. Moving on to the right side of his face, um, they were very similar. There were bruises that were all around the hairline as well on the right side. A bruise in front of his ear, so like between his ear and his jawbone, um, you know, bruising inside the ear. And there were just bruises everywhere around the chin and the neck. So basically, everything that you could see, this poor little child had a bruise, as well as not only the one bite mark that Kevin said he had made, there were at least two others. There was a bite mark on his right shoulder, his left shoulder, and his forearm. So this was definitely more than what Kevin had just hinted at in his text message. From the text messages, it sounds like it was one bite, but kind of going back and reading them, it doesn't really say whether it was just, it could he have done it more times than once, like say later in the day or maybe even previously or the previous night? And Amanda had known about two of them, but they were only talking about the one um, in the text messages when she was driving. I don't know, but there were at least three bites that were adult-sized bites, so not ones that their children would have made. And now for anybody who might think that, well, it could have been an accident, they could have got carried away, there is no way that Kevin or Amanda could look anybody in the face And say that this was just rough housing. The doctor also went on to describe that um, the skin from the base of poor Luke's penis to the tip was removed. So again, no matter what Kevin tried to say or what Amanda tried to say about rough housing or accidents or anything like that, that was not an accident. But also what was brought to attention by the doctor's testimony was the head injury was severe based on the head injury they couldn't see that luke would have been able to function you know for any amount of time based on the head injuries that he had and what he did have was akin to almost like shaken baby syndrome you know yes luke was 3 he wasn't an infant but it was the same type of trauma. It was like his head had been shaken and that created you know the swelling and the head injury in which he was not able to recover from. Also, some of the injuries indicated that they were control injuries. So like ways that Kevin would have grasped Luke to hold him or to force him in a different direction, just some way to control the little boy. In the text messages, um, the first ones, that Amanda and Luke were sending back and forth. It's mentioned that Luke was not eating right or that he didn't feel well. And that might be if you've taken a very hard blow to the stomach. So with all of this together, the doctor thinks, or the doctors thought that he probably would not have gotten those injuries any time prior to breakfast of that day the 3rd not the second when he was brought over to Luke and Amanda's house but the day on which he was returned to his mother's house on the 3rd this is important because it leaves no doubt to the fact that it was not something that happened you know while he could have been in the care of Victoria or Nick it had to have been at a time when he was you know in the care of Amanda and Luke eventually Kevin was found guilty of first-degree murder, first-degree child abuse, and neglect of a minor. Amanda pled guilty to neglect of a minor. She got four years in prison for that. Luke was given life without parole. However, there's something in the U.S., probably in many other countries as well, called spousal privilege. And what this is meant to do is to allow communication to Take place between two spouses, and that communication be confidential. But this spousal privilege and how it's applied can vary state by state. The trial would be taking place in Maryland, as that is where the actual crimes took place. Even though Luke was taken out of the vehicle and taken to a hospital in Virginia, and while those aspects did happen in Virginia, he had actually been abused. In Maryland, So they were the ones who tried the case. And the application of spousal privilege is what led to a delay in there actually being a finalized verdict in this case. And looking at it legally, I can understand why his attorneys would need to bring it up. The attorneys are there to do a job. But it really makes me question how really there could be any dispute about what should have been done and what testimony could have been applied in this case. So the communication that was in question were those text messages. Sewell's attorneys filed an appeal disputing that the actual text messages that they should not have been allowed to be entered into evidence. This had been brought out during the trial but the judge did like narrowly interpret the spousal privilege laws and allowed the attack the text messages to be admitted. However, the first appellate court that Sewell went to, um, the way it would normally work, they overruled the judge in the you know the normal case and they sent the case back for retrial. However, the prosecutor, the state's attorney, they filed an appeal as well. And the information that I'm going to provide from now on is from that second court, unless I say otherwise, because it was the second appellate court's um, decision that really stuck and what helped clarify the rules for spousal privilege, and even what is, you know, duty, the duty of an average citizen to try to protect a child. Then you throw in the fact that these were text messages, which you know, some laws are still trying to catch up to even though this was 2015 when the murder happened. All of these were things that led to the text messages to be questioned. So first, let's take a look about the privilege itself. First of all, it's not that everything is automatically confidential. It's supposed to create, quote, harmony which is what I read a couple of times, the word harmony within the marriage. So, you know, there's something you need to get off your chest, I guess. You can say it to your spouse without worrying about them just running to the police. And we see this on TV shows, on movies, where it seems like spousal privilege is invoked and then that's it. And There has to be a lot of fighting and, you know, briefs filed and everything about whether or not privilege should apply or not. The state of Maryland, they looked at privilege very, very narrowly. And what I mean by that is they didn't look at it that every word you say to your spouse is 100% covered. There has to almost be like this expectation of privacy and that I can understand why there can be some questions there. Like, do you have to say then in front of everything that you don't want your spouse to go to the police about. Don't go, don't say this to anybody, or this is privileged. Nobody thinks to do that. But still the court looks at it, looks at the privileged communication or potentially privileged communication and tries to look at it and ask, is this actually covered under privilege? Another aspect of this case was it involved injury to another person and especially a person who could not act on his or her own. This was a three-year-old. They couldn't get in a car and drive away. They didn't have a job where they didn't need the support of another person. You know, even in those cases, it's hard to get away from an abusive relationship. But when you're talking to about a three-year-old, they have no way of defending themselves. So if a spouse fears or has reason to believe that their spouse is committing any type of child abuse, or elder abuse, or any type of crime, should that be covered under spousal privilege? So that was another question. And then finally was, is there an expectation when it comes to texts compared to other types of communication between spouses? And these things kind of went into the second appellate court's decision when it comes to whether or not Luke Sewell would be able to, you know, keep his appeal, the win that he had gotten in that first appellate court, or if the second appellate court was going to rule in the state's favor. And I will let you know here too. I had like four pages of all these specific notes and texts and how things were applied. And it really became very mundane saying the same thing over and over again, given different different examples. So I have kind of paraphrased. Um, some of the reasoning behind decisions in the past in this court as they were um, making this decision. And one of the decisions in the past goes all the way back to 2004. So that kind of tells you how long it was taking for things to catch up with, you know, statutes, laws, and how fast technology was changing. But in 2004, there was a decision about spousal privilege, and an answering machine. In that year, there was a case involving a man who was abusing his stepdaughter. Once the child's mother, so his wife, became aware of that, she left. Um, You know, she had the answering machine, which her then-husband, soon-to-be ex-husband, had called and left messages on. Now, he admitted, in some ways, on that answering machine by apologizing, um, you know, he pretty much admitted that he abused his stepdaughter through the wording of some of the messages. And those messages could be heard by anybody. This was not voicemail where only you can hear it on your phone. This was an actual answering machine where when they played it, whoever came in could see it was beeping, they pushed the play button and anybody in the home could have heard it. And so because of that, that um, communication was deemed to be non privileged. He had no expectation of privacy in that because he was leaving it on a machine that he had no way of knowing who had access to that machine. So the stepdaughter that he was abusing possibly could have heard it. Anybody who was in the home when they pushed play could have heard it. So that was a knock against Sewell's win in the appeal. But one has to ask, okay, this is an answering machine. What about text messages? The court did decide that there was no expectation of privacy within those text messages. From a legal standpoint, I did have a hard time kind of wrapping my head around this because the only person who knows my passcode to my phone is my husband. And that's just to say, look at pictures or something. He doesn't have the passcode to any of my accounts. nothing like that. So if he were to, you know, unlock my phone, he could just pretty much see some pictures, maybe go onto Facebook. But on the other hand, you know, I've helped him set up things online. So I know more of his information than he knows of mine. So, okay, are there are different degrees of um, privilege or confidentiality, depending on what spouses do on their phones, or is there just, you know, one blanket statement that needs to be you know, clarified as to whether or not things on your cell phone are deemed private or not. Apparently, the courts in this instance decided that the text messages did not have that expectation of privacy. So I've tried to get into probably their thought pro- process and wondered, you know, were they thinking about if you, you know, showed somebody something on your phone, you know, showed them a video of your kids playing or, you know, your pet doing something funny, by showing them that, does that mean you're giving up all confidentiality? Is that what that means? Or were they saying that the fact that third party companies, such as your cell phone carrier, or if you're using a Wi Fi connection, that possibly the Wi Fi provider could have access to that information? That is a little iffy to me, but no matter what, the fact that there's mandatory reporting in states. In regards to things such as child abuse and who has the duty to report that child abuse, that can negate whatever privilege there is. So, even if I do have some questions about whether or not you would expect text messages to be private, I think they should be. There's no question in my mind that if you suspect that there's abuse, that has to be submitted. And it's not easy. And I've been there, I have, and it was you know, something that brought me to tears. But when you suspect something or you have a concern about somebody who's innocent and powerless to do anything against some type of abuse, and, you know, I'm not just saying children, but elder abuse, vulnerable people who you know may, may be more at risk for any type of abuse, we have a duty to speak up. I did work in an industry where, There was other types of abuse potentially towards vulnerable adults and going to say in some ways how old I am here, but at the time when I was kind of starting out in the industry, there were no laws to help protect against that. And there were actually more laws that, like in this case, kind of had to catch up with things that were happening, you know, globally in terms of technology, um, changing social norms, and I would go with concerns to the appropriate people and there was nothing that could be done because there were no laws at that time. That's been 20 or more years ago, probably, if not more, and now those laws are in place so that it's not trying to get around laws or regulations to do what's right. And it's cases like these that bring forward these lapses or these loopholes, things that need to be closed in statutes and regulations and laws so that nobody tries to use them again in the future to get away with a a horrific crime here. So what was decided by the appellate court is what I'm going to call is the good outweighs the bad. And this is kind of a simplistic view of it is I'm sure there's some things that are very nuanced but in terms of having a child that is covered in bruises at a very minimum there was a duty for her to seek care for her nephew even if she didn't know that his injuries were as bad as they were once she saw him and saw how limp I'm sure he must have been while she was changing his clothes or getting him in the booster seat that she should have sought care the drive from you know pokemoke to virginia and then waiting to get him to a local hospital, that was precious time that he may not have had. There's there's something that has been bugging me about the text messages. Now we're we're kind of looking at this in that Luke did not want those text messages admitted. But I wonder if they sent them on purpose. Now, this is my theory. I have to be clear that this is not something that at least that I saw officially discussed in anything. But I wonder if they were almost trying to make an alibi if they were sending the first set of text messages talking about you know there was a bruise and he's acting skittish, things like that to make it seem like he was already injured and hurt severely when he got to the house and you know, to explain away the fact that he had a bite mark on him, they had that second text message exchange to you know, try to build up this notion that it wasn't them. But, you know, yes, he lost his patience once when Luke was biting him and bit him back. But no, the rest of it was there before. And the fact that they're discussing, though, that their child had done it um, or that they could blame their child, it almost feels like these text messages were meant to be out there on purpose for someone to be able to see them, to give them almost an alibi. And then once their attorney saw these messages, they fought to keep them out because they realized, okay, these would be you know much more damaging than, you know, if they had not sent any text messages at all. So that's just kind of my thought or my theory. You know, if you have any thoughts on that, leave a comment. Um, but that's, I really, really think that's probably something that crossed their minds because there was just... Too much detail in some of the things they were saying in the text messages, and more importantly for the time frame here. Okay, there was about four or five minutes worth of text once she got on the road, where Kevin just out of the blue says, "Hey, I love you. Be careful." Normally, I would say that to my spouse before they leave, so that they're not trying to check messages while they're driving. That's my thought. First thing that popped out of my mind on the second set of texts, but altogether as both sets, they just seem kind of contrived to me. So, by the time this went to the highest courts in 2019, I think common sense was prevailing in that the court verified that it was the responsibility to report suspected abuse, even if the suspected abuser has invoked confidentiality. Also, Kevin should have realized that if he is sending a message to his wife, about a child being injured, he should reasonably expect that she might, you know, go to authorities. Or even if she just mentions to someone at work um, you know, saying that she just got a message from her husband and he's really impatient with, you know, their nephew, that the nephew has bruises and is biting and Kevin just, you know, bit him back. I can see, honestly, I could see Amanda saying that. I don't know her. I've never met her, but just if the text messages really do reflect what they feel, I can almost see her saying that to someone and not really thinking about her responsibility as an aunt, as the child's mother's sister to report the fact that her husband is injuring a child. And they have at least the one child together. I saw that a son and daughter was both mentioned, um even though names weren't given just son or daughter, but even, though it's not her child, she still should realize that if he has the capability to hurt any child, just as a mother, he could hurt their children too. And I know I couldn't watch my nephew being injured by someone, no matter what I felt about that person, you know, whether or not it was, you know, a family member, a friend, you know, even my own spouse, which, you know, I don't think you'd ever do anything like that, or I wouldn't have married him. Um, But You know, it doesn't matter if they're hurting a child, you report it. And it would have been difficult. I do understand she couldn't raise two children on her own. But at the same time, do you want to take the risk that your spouse is going to harm them or any other child? But thankfully, the courts did rule that the original verdict should stand. And so Sewell was basically remanded back down to the lower courts. So that he could begin the the sentencing process, which he did get life in prison without the possibility of parole. So overall, I think the assumption that we should look at privilege with is that protection trumps everything else. So whether it's a vulnerable adult, a child, if you see abuse going on, we hear it It's a saying that says, see something, say something. I know the system is not perfect. I see way too many cases where either children are left in homes where they shouldn't be or in other cases of a pretty high profile case that I've been following from when I first heard about it. So for three or four years now at least where a child was taken away when she shouldn't have been and there there was medical documentation behind the fact that she should not have been taken. But she was, and that caused the breakdown of the family as well. So there's definitely improvements that need to be made across the board, starting from, you know, from the very beginning when you become a parent, when you become an adult, while you're going through school. At all these stages, we should be preparing people, um, you know, for the next stages in life. What are their duties as, you know, a member of society as a whole? As a parent, once they get to that point in that right, their life if they choose to become a parent, you know, we need to start earlier, in my opinion, and I know it's not going to catch, you know, everybody, there's always going to be people out there who are violent, who are angry, who, you know, they don't try to control their anger, or they're, they're unable to control their anger. But if we try to get ahead of things, you know, with Recognizing signs earlier with people not being afraid to report cases of abuse. And just what I'm a big proponent of is you know just teaching some things in schools to help people be more prepared to face life and better able to cope with challenges so that hopefully they never get to a point where they're so mad that they're taking it out on other people, much less you know, someone who is defenseless. But that's just my thought. Um, But to to finish up a few other thoughts that I kind of had throughout the case was probably the first thing that jumped out to me with the injuries, and I think I probably touched on it when I discussed it was about the two black eyes. And it's like if if I see any child with two black eyes, where I'm talking to the parent, you know, I would probably be something like, "Hey, what happened there? Did you, you know, what happened to cause your eyes to?" To look like that and try to get some information because you don't know how a child could get two black eyes a head injury might bring it about but then if there's a head injury have they been seen by a medical professional so why didn't amanda worry about those two black eyes originally because there's there just doesn't seem to be much of a reaction from her until she's actually text You know, texting back and forth with her husband. That's another reason why I think maybe those messages were contrived, because that's not something I would normally text back and forth to someone. It's something I would want to discuss with and get an immediate response about not, okay, well, they're going to text me whenever they feel like it. And then just what I, another thing I wish I had more information about was what about his neck breaking out? A lot of the um, medical information was about bruising around the neck, but I didn't really see anything about, you know, his neck breaking out. So I wonder if maybe he even had some type of burns, like a chemical burn or carpet burn. That wasn't mentioned, so I do think that would have been mentioned by the doctors if that was on there. But I wonder what they were trying to point out or cover up, if there was anything at all that they were trying, you know, to point out or cover up. Or was it there was something really there that was breaking out? It's just something that to me that was left kind of unexplained. But if you do have any ideas or comments, please feel free to comment on, you know, the episode or on YouTube if you watch it there. It just gets very overwhelming to know that, that people can do something like this to someone so much smaller than them, you know. And he was a parent himself. Amanda was a parent. You know, how could they look at this little child and not wonder, you know, what would happen if that was their child? How would they feel if it was their child? It just seems like the only thing they had in mind was covering themselves and not worrying about taking care of little Luke. So my heart really goes out to the rest of Luke's family, not his aunt and uncle, of course. And also, you know, to Luke and amanda's kid i'm sorry um kevin and amanda's kids because they're left without their parents for an amount of time their mother for at least four years which frankly i think it she shouldn't have full custody of them ever maybe visitation supervised but not custody and their father's in jail for the rest of his life so that's so many people who've been affected harmed devastated by Luke's death, not to mention what he could have given the world. That's always something we don't know. You know, could he have been, you know, a great doctor, a scientist, author, you know, someone who brought about change into the world, into his community. You know, even just changing one person's life is something to be proud of if you change their lives in a positive way. And he could have done that, and we never know. And in any case at all, whether it involves someone dying and even the person who perpetrated the crime they could have had potential that they're not going to live up to just the loss of potential as well is such a loss to everybody that he would have touched i know i could probably go on and on about this because i've been thinking about this case for weeks now um i did take a pause when i read the injuries and you know as as you know, if you've listened to previous episodes, it's not been a great year. And my dad is back in cancer treatment and was back to the hospital a couple times this past week. Um, and I see and I think we all see how precious life is and to see it so needlessly taken away. It just can be very overwhelming. So I hope everybody can just take some time to remember Luke, his cousins, his family. And what they're going through, not only during holidays or birthdays, anniversaries, but what they go through every day without having them in their lives. Just, you know, my thoughts go out to them. And I know that things will never be completely better. I know there's no such thing as complete closure, especially when there's another family member involved. But I hope now the statutes and laws have been made clearer so that people feel more comfortable and ready to come forward and report these types of cases. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. I will get one more episode out before the end of the year, but um, you know, like I was just saying with some of the things going on, I can't guarantee an exact date, um, so I don't want to say that, but I will get at least the one more out before the end of the year, and I hope everyone has a nice rest of 2023. Bye.